Center Podcast. I am your host, Brian. Uh, on the other side is Alex. Hey, everybody. So I was running some errands on lunch today, and I'm sitting at a stoplight waiting to make a left from the sort of the side street onto the main. Okay. Uh, behind me is a decent downhill spot, like coming in. So, you know, you're downhill and it just flattens out for the light. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there. Got to use those brakes. Right, right. So I'm sitting there just enjoying the music or whatever. It's a beautiful day. And on my right-hand side, a guy, no helmet, sh- uh, T-shirt, shorts, and sandals, comes whipping by on a bicycle, mountain bike. Okay. And makes a hard right turn. at you know. Oh, boy. And <laughs> my very first reaction was, this guy's going to eat it because yeah. he's flying. like Wear- Wearing none of the appropriate gear. N- nothing, nothing. <laughs> Foot comes out, right uh, oh, right, no. right. foot comes out like he's on a dirt bike. You know, they, they stick their leg out. Oh, um, oh okay. So purposely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he sticks his right leg out because he thinks he's going to eat it too. <laughs> so on a dirt bike, when you're making a hard turn, you put whichever direction you're turning, you put your leg out because when the front tire... Loses, your inside leg. Your inside leg, right. When the front tire loses grip, it, it does what we call folds. Mm-hmm. and it folds to the inside of whatever direction you're going, and right. you use your foot to stomp the ground and stand everything back up and, and keep going. Okay. This guy, <laughs> I mean, the bike, both wheels, the whole thing is chattering. The whole thing is shaking and Shit. on the complete edge of grip, and he makes it. <laughs> I have the windows open, and I'm just screaming, Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> This guy, because he, first off, he caught me by surprise. Yeah. Because he's going so fast. I yeah. thought for sure he was going to eat it. So did he. And then he ends up sliding around like the back tire's all loose. And, yeah. And he, he pulled it off and <laughs> went on his way. Did he hear you yelling? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe he did, but he didn't react. Yeah. Do you think but anybody I, else around enjoyed the show like you did? Nobody, nobody was looking at me, mm-hmm. but... Um, there was a car. I mean, he made an aggressive. He did not look left at all. Like <laughs> we had the green light, so he, you know, I had the red arrow. He had the green light, so that's why I wasn't moving. But still, he 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 trusted the system, just like how, last. <laughs> how old do you think this guy was? That because I mean, with behavior oh. like that, it's a miracle he's lasted. Uh, late twenties, early thirties, I'd guess. Okay. Young, right. younger dude, definitely, younger. but not like yeah. not like. Uh, Certainly not less than twenty five. Okay. So pretty impressive. And I always that... saw the I always saw the back of him too. <laughs> <laughs> Did this bike have suspension? No. Nope. Was like the suspension? No, solid. No, bike. Nope. Nothing. Dude. Just sailed through the corner and Damn. it was glorious. That's it was, awesome. It was really good. Made my made my afternoon. <laughs> I don't think I saw any crazy stuff like that today. No, I mean certainly not that. I remembered that. <laughs> Yeah. God, I still, I'm, obviously I brought it up because it was crazy, but I'm, I'm yeah. thinking about it now. It really is incredible. Wait, did he, you catch it on your dash cam? Um, no, unfortunately Damn. not. Damn, no, not pointing in the right direction. No, he was off too far off to the right. Yeah. And I was, I was already kind of facing left a little bit. Right. Well, damn, that sounds fun. I mean, scary for him. Was, I mean, yeah, he was, and it wasn't the outside of the turn. It wasn't going to be good. Like, he was going into a curb and some brush and, like, trees and shit. So it wasn't yeah. going to be good if he ate it. So, 
Okay, um, I think wow. you're up. Yeah, all right, so... Um, Unless you have any ramblings, but... Um, you know, I don't think so. Fair enough. Actually, you know what I do want to say? <laughs> this is totally random and not relevant to anything, but I've been listening to a lot of Kanye lately. Music. Really? Yeah. Have you ever indulged? These beats are dope. <laughs> is, uh, that's a direct quote from him about his own beats. Yeah, I know. That shit <laughs> happens. <laughs> um, he is really, really creative. and Really? I, Dude, his... Yeah, yeah. I respect him in a lot of ways. Most of the time, it doesn't jive with me. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't stop it from being expertly crafted. Mm -hmm. Or at least... Yeah, I would say that's a good way to describe it, because... I don't know. Especially the first two albums he's put out, you know, so they're a decade old more at this point. Um, and obviously this carries through to his newer stuff too, but just the, the best way I can describe it is how detailed his production yes. is. Yep. It's incredible. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I don't like, you know, it, it just doesn't really sit well. Um, the whole Yeezus album, for instance, was a little hard to swallow. <laughs> Granted, I've only listened to it once and a lot of times I, on first listen, I'm iffy about things and then, yeah, me too. Um, me too. But yeah, I, I just like, so the the reason this happened is because I randomly listened to his latest album he put out, um, and it jived with me a little bit, so I was, uh, figured I'd go back, and it was pretty fun, because there was like six, no, seven other albums that I just got to kind of binge, and I don't know, it was a good time, I gotta say. I think Obviously another... some of it's better than others. <laughs> Another for issue for me, I don't know what this says about me, but I, I think I don't get a lot of things. Like, I'm just not following that that area of pop culture and, uh, you know, yeah. So, like, a lot of his stuff, I feel like, has at least messages and whatnot in it. And you could tease most of it out, I probably. But, like, mm -hmm. I just remember, I can't even remember exactly what was going on, but there was something going on with The Life of Pablo, I think it's called, which is yeah, two out, one two albums ago whatever it is and i just mm -hmm. don't get it like i'm just not involved so it doesn't, yeah i mean doesn't speak to me i guess i guess going i didn't i don't know anything about him really as a person um just little random tidbits you might pick up here and there so i listened to all of his music without any backstory on anything Damn, dude. nice okay so i don't know so i'm sure i absolutely guarantee you that there's plenty that i didn't understand either but um in that sense, I think it allowed me to listen to his production a bit more going through the first time. I would like to listen to them again, but... Because you know what's um, in my head most of the time when I'm... I don't know, if, again, what this says, but there's that music video he did with um, Kim Kardashian. Do you know the one I'm talking about? No. Okay. You know uh, they're married, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, we don't have to elaborate much more on it than that, but... If you saw the music video and how strange it is, how the the song is just as strange as as, as other ones, you know, it's got mm -hmm. it's got samples in there that are have no generally speaking have no business being in music in general. Yeah, interesting. Um, but then the video itself is just an expose of look how hot my wife is, which <laughs> you know I'm down for in a certain sense, but yeah. That's just, I guess that's just in my head whenever I hear Kanye. Yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. It's, 
I guess you just got to take him for who he is. Yeah. Like yeah. you should do with anybody, right? No hate. No uh, hate. It's he's just definitely odd. just a, a an odd dude, for no doubt about that. Yeah. Anyway. God knows I make that's... shitty music, so. <laughs> and you don't get paid for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> Nothing. I have no shade to throw. <laughs> All right. Um, all right. So, what I wanted to talk about today um, is badge engineering. Do you know badge what that term engineer- is? Are you talking about the backs, the the badges on cars? Uh, yeah. In a sense, that's what it's talking about. Well, not in a sense, but do you so, know what the term generally when people say badge engineering, which is a bit of a misnomer, honestly, in its title. I was going to um, say, okay, it's uh, it can't be the literal designing and engineering and creating of the. The Mazda logo or whatever. No, not that's, the logo. That's itself. too literal. Right. Okay. That's too micro. Um, so it's got to be. <laughs> is it just the the development process of what name and symbol or style can we give this car so it'll sell the best? Um. No, not really. So generally, what it, I mean, kind of. I guess that could be a part of it, but um, really, what it is is in its basic form. Let's say I take a Dodge and rebadge it as a Plymouth and sell it under a new brand to potentially different customers. But really, I've done nothing. I haven't done work to engineer two cars. I've only designed and engineered one car. And all I did was switch the badge. Okay. So, and the reason this is an interesting topic to me is because. A, it's fu- it's funny on one end because you can just see car companies being cheap, um, but then it kind of I don't know it it kind of goes along the spectrum of degrees at which your badge engineering from its most offensive end of the spectrum, which is what I just said, where you know let's take a Dodge and literally change the badge and nothing else. I'm ripping that, on Dodge, but is that sanctioned? Is that, what do you mean? Is that is that sanctioned by the if if uh, I'm just gonna pick two. If Chevy is rebadging a Ford, obviously not gonna happen. But um, is Ford saying you can do this, or is Chevy saying we're doing this? Uh, no, all of this is sanctioned and agreed okay. upon by okay. Who, okay. whoever is doing the the act. Before you go too much further, uh, yeah, just this this idea in general has mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it in a long time. But the idea has always perplexed me because I want to know who's the guy or gal who's like, I'm, I'm struggling to think of two cars that are the same. The GMC Jimmy and the, uh, what's the, what's the other, the GMC Jimmy and then there's the Chevrolet something but... suburban. No, Blazer. No, Blazer, damn it. <laughs> Who is the guy? That's good though. Like... That's a, that's actually kind of a more obscure example, I would say. So Thank nice. You. um but like who's the guy who's i don't want a chevy i need a gmc to the level or do do they know they're buying a blazer maybe that's the better question so well that's the thing okay no 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 i want this to be an open discussion so that's totally fine and it just seems like a part of what i was going to talk about but it is extremely silly um and it's actually what got uh, some of the American brands in trouble um, oh, is doing that lazy. exact thing. 
Um, because you're right, there's a certain, there, and, okay, let me, let me back up one step. Yeah. The spectrum, <laughs> the spectrum I would just want to lay down for people so they can kind of get, uh, an idea of what we're talking about here. So, badge engineering in its basic term and most facetious sense is going to be trying to sell one car that you've done the work to, and money to develop, selling it as multiple models. Right. Um, sometimes it can work. Sometimes you can take it way too far. On the other end of things, where you start getting into this area where, well, maybe we shouldn't call it badge engineering, is when you start sharing vehicle platforms, things underneath the vehicle um, that the customer doesn't necessarily see and interact with, um, and then you change things that the customer does see. So you'd have a different interior, different exterior panels, sharing things that the customer is not going to notice necessarily. So you start distinguishing the vehicles enough to the point where you say, okay, this actually is a separate vehicle. So there's kind of so, this gray area. So does uh, that happen, that one you just laid out? It probably yeah. happens for both, but that certainly happens. The platform sharing certainly happens within a brand. Oh, yeah. So- and sounds like and it- that's, platform sharing is critical these right. days, actually. Right. So it's, it's streamlined automate, or streamlined uh, product development. Yeah. And that makes uh, sense. It sure does. Yeah. If you can, if you can have a monocoque, well, do they call it? They probably don't call them monocoques. In, uh, oh, actually, no. That, that's the right term. Uh, if you're developing a, um, a unibody, more typically that's, used, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Unibody or body and white is definitely yeah. a more common term. Ooh, body and white is what the, uh, the Yeah, so that's going to be the metal structure of a vehicle without any A-class surfaces generally. So, okay, I'm trying to think of two cars that have... <laughs> I mean, they're going to be. Uh, do like Dodge and Toyota talk, like the Camry and the Neon? Well, so yeah, so let's talk about some of the the reasons yeah. why you might do this, or a car okay. company would do this, right? So, the obvious one, I guess, would be saving development costs, right? On new vehicles, it costs a lot of money to design and engineer and build a vehicle. They've already so, got a working. They've already got a working steering wheel. Let's just take that one. Yeah, so you can you can start taking, you know, parts like that, or you could. So even um, we'll use this for an example. This one, the Dodge and Plymouth Neon. Oh, okay, right. From back in the day, and then I 90s. forgot there even were two. <laughs> exactly, dude. Literally, I mean, this is this is on the left end of the spectrum. I laid out. They were literally the exact same vehicle. Just different badge, no other changes. Um, so as opposed to, you know, maybe one step up from that, sometimes let's say you're going from a, uh, and I apologize in advance for if people don't be able to picture some of these vehicles, but let's say a Chevy Cavalier to a, you know, Pontiac G3 or something, or G4. Um, you'll change like the plastic bumpers and the headlights a little bit. All the metal is going to be the same. The interiors are largely the same, but you're going to change maybe the headlights and taillights just to give them kind of their own look. But give me, give me ninety-eight percent the same. Chevy Cavalier and what? Um, so actually, do the do the Chevy Cobalt and the Pontiac G G five. Oh, I know. Okay, I can. I know this one without even looking them up. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Same car, just little details that are different. So that right there, the the Dodge and the Neon, or the Plymouth and the Dodge <laughs> so Neon, that's an interesting one. Um, 
So you might be able to, sometimes you got to play the brand, right? So that one I can't really explain, I'll be honest. But let's say you have a brand in an area that is well recognized as opposed to your other brands. So, um, you know, Chevy might be really well recognized somewhere, but not Pontiac. So you'd rather sell the Chevy Cavalier version as opposed to the Pontiac. Um, okay. So you're giving people variety, but the problem is when <laughs> you do something like what GM did or did, and this got them in serious trouble, is you just start creating these pseudo luxury versions of the same car, um, and try and you sell it for much more as you go up the tier of models. So let's say. Um, so one of the one of the most ridiculous uh, examples of this is going to be um, I want to pull it up just so I make sure I don't forget any of the model derivi- uh, derivatives because there literally are too many a gross amount. Um, real, real quick while you're pulling that yeah, up, yeah, uh, yeah. I thought of I thought of a super well hopefully obscure one the Pontiac GTO and the Holden. Uh, I don't know what oh, yeah. co- the Commodore. So, there you go. So that's actually. Nice. That's uh, that's really nice, actually. Good example, um, because that's an example of when it it's actually those are a two different countries. Logical decision, yeah. We don't you don't sell Holden over here, so you're not going to bring over that model. And yeah, just all of a sudden start selling one brand. Just for the one vehicle from yeah. The, the Pontiac GTO is a awesome sports car, uh, mm-hmm. both in its relatively current form and obviously back in the day, but in Australia and probably surrounding areas and i don't know if they sell them in europe too but in australia the same car is branded as a holden commodore um i don't know if is pontiac is holden just a direct port of pontiac or is it just that car nope just that car just that very interesting yeah um that was a way for them to get that car over in the u.s so bring you know Again, oh, it was a, it was a Holden first that version. Holden of the that that version that you're referring to, you know, in the mid to late 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Holden oh, first and brought it that. over as a Pontiac because Pontiac they were starting to turn it into a more performance brand. Got it. Okay. Right. I so love that car. So that's when it makes sense, and they changed the way it looked a little bit, but it, that makes sense because there's no there's no comparable product here for that to the yeah. american market that's a new car so it makes so all, sense to make good. it a pontiac because that's the brand we know right yeah okay so back to uh yeah so the one i'm thinking of um is in the late 90s through the 2000s uh this is gm's midsize suv and i believe the the platform is like gmt3 something um so we're talking the, and this is what Dad had, the Chevy Trailblazer. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, I know, this, I know, the, I think I know the other one. Go ahead. This list is going to go on for a second. The Buick Rainier, the Isuzu Ascender, the Oldsmobile what? Bravada, and the Saab 97X. Oldsmobile I Bravada. I think that is all of them. Holy shit! I just looked up the Oldsmobile Bravada. Does it look a little familiar? To you? <laughs> So when I mean, you look the, at this, and the and, first picture, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to try to explain to the to the yeah, listeners yeah. the way this one's done, and we're talking the third generation Bravado, so before Oldsmobile got the X. Um, 
Basically, everything on this vehicle behind the A-pillar where the windshield connects, um, probably even in front of that a little bit, is all the same vehicle. All they did was change the front bumper, which is plastic, so it's pretty easy, and then give it different headlights and a different grill. So to somebody who doesn't know necessarily what they're, they're dealing with, somebody who might be an Oldsmobile brand loyalist for whatever reason, is like, well, yeah, I'm going to get the Oldsmobile version because... A, I don't know what other version you're talking about. Right, I don't, right. I don't understand that. And here it is, so I'm going to buy it. And Chevy's gonna, or GM's going to charge more because it's an Oldsmobile. So, big problem. Doesn't even look that good. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I actually enjoyed the Trailblazer, but... No, it, and that's the thing. is it? It's, it's not that car. any of them are a bad vehicle. It's that... So, I think the Trailblazer was probably the cheapest version... And then slap a little more leather leather on it, and all of a sudden it's a Buick Rainier, and then, you know, add a little more tech to it, plus a so little more leather, and you got the Oldsmobile version, and blah, blah, blah. It keeps going. So for the Buick, it looks like they changed the back a little bit. Um, and they added And they added a little bit of uh, uh, surface detail to the, the sides, you know, running from the front to the yeah, back. Yeah, they added some plastic down there or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, the other it's one I thought funny. you were going to, the other one I thought you were going to say, where's the GMC Envoy and all that? That's another one. That's okay, in that. Good. Did I not mention that one? I don't know. I thought maybe. I said it. Okay. Either way. Either way. That one's in there too. Cause a neighbor of ours <laughs> had the GMC Envoy in the yeah. same color as dad's trailblazer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you were to pull up all these cars and just kind of look at them, like you spend two seconds looking at them, you're like, yeah, it's a different car. But then you really start to look at the way all the pillars are. And the window shapes, and you're like, oh, wait a second, something's going on here. They're actually all exactly the same thing. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little biased, but, I mean, the Trailblazer definitely is the better-looking one of the group. The mm-hmm. front, the front of the Trailblazer that. is definitely... It actually looks like a cohesive design. Right. Where some of the others... The other good-looking one is the Saab 9.7, I gotta say. Oh, I didn't see that Click one. Click on that one. 2004 Saab 9.7? Yeah, 9.7X. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not bad. That they actually good. did the most. It looks like they did the most. I think this one got out. the most attention. Yeah. Yeah. But you can still like see. It. Look, you know that rear window shape, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's you right. can tell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, interestingly, uh, GM's been doing. The- GM basically pioneered this practice from the fifties. Go look at, you know, like a 58 Impala compared to the Buick version, the Roadmaster or something compared to the Pontiac version. You can tell they did a little bit more back then to distinguish them, but, I mean, that's, you know, probably mid-spectrum in terms of going from badge engineering to to pl- just straight-up platform sharing. Um, would you, yeah, they've would been you doing cons- it for a long time. <laughs> would you consider the fact that like a 2003 era Corvette base model hmm. had the same cabin controls as the Dodge Caravan. Is that platform sharing? Is that what you consider platform sharing? No. So I would, that's more of like, or just stupid. In. that's okay. just being cheap. So, um, just to be clear, sorry, the two that, well, I don't know. If they, I doubt they still do it, but, um, or at least to this level but like an 03 mm-hmm. corvette mm-hmm. you would get in this thing and i remember so clearly 
getting into not that we you remember uh marcel's corvette shop yeah of course so he had a silver 03 in there and i sat down in it one day and that was when i noticed that or no i'm sorry it wasn't the um it, it was the same the controls as in dad's the truck as the trailblazer yeah. that's right which that's was right, right outside which is right <laughs> you were like oh wait <laughs> exactly exactly so here's an 03 corvette and i think dad had an 03 or 04 trailblazer mm-hmm. um and yeah the, the the radio knobs the air conditioning all that was exactly the same and yeah looked fine in the trailblazer looked mm-hmm. like cheap shit in the corvette yeah it's uh that's a balancing act that still certainly gets done today to an extent um a little more carefully though so it doesn't, hope. it's not as obvious, you know, some of the stuff that's less critical, they'll just share and it makes sense. Um, when done, yeah, right, you don't have to have, it's not, you don't have to have different knobs for everything, but right. But you know, do you want the, your halo sports car to have the exact same stuff as your, you know, bread and butter SUV? Maybe not. Brand so cons- brand consistency. <laughs> yeah. Right. You could chalk it up to that. So one of the most, um, infamous examples of badge engineering goes back to um I forget what year it took place uh but the um cattle have you ever heard of the cadillac cimarron no. Is that name so it was cadillac. in the 80s sometime i could try to grab the c or s cimarron cimarron it's a c c what year do you want? Okay. Uh, it doesn't really matter, it looks like. Did you find it? Yeah. What okay, it looks you... just... Um, I didn't put in a year, but it looks a lot like a Buick. Okay, I got it. 82 to 88. That's amazing that it lasted that long. So what that is... <laughs> dude, I kid you not. Basically, what was happening was the... You know, the... Well, Cadillac in this instance was feeling a lot of pressure from some of the uh, smaller luxury vehicles from other brands. So what GM in their brilliance decided to do was take the Chevy Cavalier, basically the cheapest car that GM made and out of any of their brand portfolio, and swatted the inside with leather a little bit, gave it basically nothing else, maybe a pinstripe down the side or something, and labeled it as a Cadillac and sold it for, I kid you not, twice as much they tried to sell it as. So, I mean, that's just ripping off people. Because, you know, there's people who, I mean, they did struggle to sell it, but there's people who got ripped off because they thought they Absolutely. were buying a genuine Cadillac. And they not didn't at know. All. Yeah, they didn't know. You can't expect everybody to... My first thought was a Buick. That is what it looked like. But now that you said mm-hmm. that it's the Cavalier, I had mm-hmm. forgotten that that's what the Cavalier looked like back then. You're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it is. I'm actually, there is a Cavalier in the Google Images search results. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a donked out version of this car. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, and the problem with this is, I mean, there's, there's tons of problems with these really messed up just, uh, you know, ethical level, but. Now you have a car that it still drives like a Cavalier. They didn't change the, you know, the the platform, the engines, the rest of the drivetrain or the suspension or anything. So it drives the same way the cheapest car they make drives. Um, yeah, so this, this one was a big deal because it actually really hurt the brand image and everything about Cadillac. Like, 
I guess the I haven't seen it for myself, of course, but the story is that they keep this a picture of this car, like front and center somewhere in the Cadillac building, engineering building, and basically with a message like, "Don't do this again." <laughs> never again. Yeah. Never well, that's again, good something. that they acknowledge. I was going to ask, like, what sort of consequences? I guess just public image and lack yeah. of sales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one's pretty egregious. I mean, it's pretty bad. It looks so terrible with the luggage rack on the back. <laughs> oh my god, it's so ugly. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help that that era of car design was pretty bad, just as is in general. Yeah, they, but... they look like. Excuse me, Russians, mm-hmm. but they look like shitty Russian cars. <laughs> um, so while we're on the, let's see, some other examples before we, I just wanted to talk about a couple other reasons why somebody might do this, but some other examples. Um, this one's kind of, this one's fun, uh, just because I like this vehicle. But the Geo Tracker, the Suzuki Samurai, and the Chevy Tracker uh, were all the same vehicle. Uh, sometime in the 90s, which is funny because Chevy and Geo didn't even change the name. Uh, they both called them trackers, just different brand, so that one's interesting. Um, Chevy Colorado in the Isuzu I-Series, they're as bad engineering as it gets, so that's the previous generation mid-size Chevy pickup, the Isuzu version, which you could also get in the U.S., uh, had a different grill. That was it. Uh <laughs> Uh, oh, Cadillac did it again. So oh, no. really, they didn't that whole thing with the. Um, they didn't the learn. The first time. They didn't really learn the first time because go type in Cadillac Catera, and what that is is an Opel Vectra, which is a. Um, a car in England, or in Europe in general, I should say. So that one, they tried to bring a vehicle not available in the U.S. over here and relabel it as a Cadillac, and it failed it doesn't even as hard. It doesn't even have any Cadillac styling cues at all. See, exactly, and you're able to easily point that out the second you look at it. Not and a they... single thing on this, except for maybe, the like, like you said, the stamped-in-place grill. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing that says Cadillac on this whole yep. car. So... Everything else says Toyota Camry. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, they did it again with that car, and it didn't work again. Um, Shitting on bad decisions in the post-era is a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So some other reasons why you might do this that are not necessarily evil. Um, Let's say, so this is potentially why it happened with the GeoTracker. Let's say GM absorbed another (laughs) brand. This fucking car. Are Sorry. you looking at one of those? Uh, no, I'm I'm laughing at the Geo Tracker. Yeah, it's amazing. I actually really for a lot it. for a lot of reasons. It's a love hate thing, but I have like personal stories with it too. So anyway. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah. So let's say GM absorbs Geo, which I believe they did at least in majority. Um. Rather than figuring out how to market Geo and and you know deal with a brand that's probably not as successful, it might be better to just take the vehicles that they already have developed that you just purchased and put your own label on it. So Yeah, that doesn't seem so I mean we're we're cutting into the minutiae here, but mm-hmm. that doesn't that certainly I can swallow that one a bit easier because right. you just spent all this money acquiring it. Right. You know the vehicles you can, are already there. If you can sell the car mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't do it maliciously, like you said. 
right. necessarily. So that could be one reason. Um, so another, an interesting one is two brands have something that the other brand wants, and they basically, you know, exchange product, I guess, or um, I guess uh, another version of that would be two brands doing a joint venture to develop one vehicle and then selling it independently under their own brands. So some examples of that. Um, would be the currently on sale Subaru BRZ and um, Toyota GT86, their little rear-wheel drive sports car. They're pretty cool. Yeah, they developed that together, so they each had a hand in actually designing and engineering it. And the reason for that is to split the costs. But um, that makes sense. And then at the end of it, you, in that example, they basically look the same, but... Um, it doesn't and come that, off as crude because each it's just a co-developed car. I was, I was going to say that that one. It's actually pretty cool in a lot. It of ways. is cool, and it's and that's perfectly you know it's recognized as legitimate in the industry. I mean, right now we're waiting on Toyota and BMW to unveil the um, joint vehicle that they just developed. So BMW is going to be selling a new Z4, and then. Toyota is expected to announce it as the Supra under their brand. Yeah. So this is cool because Toyota wanted to put an inline six in this new Supra because that's what the car used to have. But currently they don't have one of those. Who's really good at inline sixes? BMW. Maybe we should get together. How you doing? Um, Yeah, exactly. So, and then, you know, maybe BMW is interested in, in... Toyota's ability to build cars extremely efficiently and, um, you know, I don't know if they have any durability desirabilities there, but... um, They should if they don't. (laughs) Yeah, right. Either way, it's a way for them to split costs and each of them gets something out of it. And what's really cool about this one is they are actually... This is definitely more towards the right end of the spectrum where we're talking platform sharing because they're going to have different transmissions, same engine, but bodywork is going to be or expected to be, I should say, uh, you know, completely different. They're not going to look or even drive the same. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, mm-hmm. there's there's no attempt to hide the fact that this was developed no, together. And it, right, right. No, definitely not. It's something to be proud of, really, um, for both of them, I would say. Um, yeah, so that, one, that one's pretty interesting, so... Yeah, so that's why, uh, you know, badge engineering is, first of all, it's a funny term because in its most basic sense, there's no engineering being done. Well, there is on the one vehicle, but then not on the others. But, um, yeah, so it can go everything from that all the way to platform sharing, which, just to end on the on the platform sharing note, so that's going to be either like the joint venture we just talked about or within a brand like you mentioned earlier. Um, let's say I'm taking a uh, Ford Escape. I have this crossover Ford Escape and I want to market it under the Lincoln brand and sell another vehicle. So 20 years ago, all I would have done is change the grill and slap a new badge on it and you know maybe cover the dash in leather. But now, these two cars have completely different interiors, different seats, different you know, human uh, machine interfaces and um, hardly anything in the interior is shared, if anything. 
uh, and then completely different exterior panels. You might They might share a roof, something like that. So they might have the same height, and overall dimensions are similar, but basically all the A-class surfaces, like the doors and the hood and stuff, they're all different. So, And actually, in the sense of Ford versus Lincoln, they even changed the drivetrains. So you have different engines, different transmissions. I mean, so basically everything that the customer doesn't see, you know, that could be shared because it doesn't matter from a from a customer standpoint, really. Right. Uh, and then everything else is, is different. So there really are two different vehicles. So in that sense, it makes it makes complete business yep. sense to do that, right? Sure does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so do, it's, uh, do we think do we think the uh, the underhanded form of it is is still going on? Like, do you know um, of any? Not current? really, because everybody that was doing it kind of got called out for it, and yeah. I mean that's essentially why. You know, we now won't no longer have Pontiac and Oldsmobile and all those brands because they got the short end of the way, stick after. Not that all of their ways vehicles they were propped were, up, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they were they were propped up by this practice in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. They yeah, they had a, really... they had the Viper, but without you know, you can't just sell a Viper. You've got to be able to sell. <laughs> a... I can't really think of any other. Um, you know, there's there's definitely vehicles that are sold under different brands in different markets, like we explained, makes perfect sense Yeah, that's to do. Yeah. But I can't think of any two vehicles being sold in the U.S. right now that they're trying to pass off as two different vehicles. I don't think anybody's so doing that it's, anymore. It's interesting. Uh, a couple times now I've been thinking what that board meeting was like. Because <laughs> part of me is super cynical. My normal self is like, they were wanted to make money and they thought they could get away Actively, they said to themselves, we can totally trick the American public, and we this is fine. But then yeah. the, real, the realist side of me says, yes, somebody at some point said, won't somebody notice? And they said, eh. So yes, that thought was there, but it was driven much more either by laziness or just pure money-making. It wasn't like, I guess I'm not really drawing a huge distinction between the two here. I don't know. I guess well, I'm just I mean, curious. in the in this case of the Cadillac Cimarron, it was a rush job, right, to try to get something to market that would satisfy this new space that Cadillac didn't have otherwise. Okay, maybe that's what um, I'm trying to say here. Is is but that not... plays to the laziness, right? They rather than yep. coming up with a a good product, they were just like, well, we'll just do this. <laughs> yeah. I guess ultimately, though, at all points in in these examples, these bad ones, somebody mm-hmm. at some point must have said, hey you know we're lying, right? And then they all went, eh. Eh. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Because I've been in those kinds of meetings in my happened. own sp- I've been in those kinds of meetings in my own space, and they're not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's badge engineering in a nutshell. So next time you it. see a... Uh... A GMC Jimmy. A GMC Jimmy. <laughs> the best Just named car ever. Right. Almost as good as so that Suzuki Samurai Geo Tracker, yep. Chevy Tracker in other markets that's it's the uh, Suzuki Jimny with an N J I M N Y, Jimny, yeah. And that thing's actually cooler than you think. It might look silly, but that's a body on frame, solid axle, off road ready vehicle. The Tracker Jimny, yeah. everything. Yeah, 
so the one of the reasons I was laughing is because a guy that I uh, he moved on from the company I work at, but uh, he owned two of them. That's awesome. Yeah, he was a uh, red one and a blue one, and he drove pretty much. He drove both, um, and he would <laughs> you know he would switch whichever ones he was driving. Yeah. Um, and they were like basically identical. And yeah, it's just funny. And he loved them. I'm pretty he sure loved they the didn't change out the uh, the suspension or anything. I know the the Suzuki uh, version is at least solid axle front and rear. I don't know if they did anything on the Dio version. I I doubt it. That's, that's <laughs> it would have been more conversation. It would have been more money to put in a lesser axle. Right. Well. Well, I guess not lesser. That's the wrong word. But yeah, different, different. Different, yeah. Solid, solid. you could argue, is lesser yeah. for certain reasons, yeah. Um, anyway. All right. Well, uh, there was a brand engineering, right? Badge engineering. Badge engineering. Um, yep. Sorry. There was a badge engineering uh, going on situation in uh, in my topic as well, weirdly enough. So the U.S. Forest Service at one point had an air tanker scandal where they received some military, out-of-date military aircraft like C-130s and Navy P-3s, okay. which is an anti-submarine patrol aircraft. Pretty dope. Ooh, cool. And they basically took those and were like, yeah, we're just going to sell these to the public and pretend, <laughs> and pretend that they're not military. And mm. they got in a lot of trouble for doing that. Basically, what happened? Basically, what happened was, um, well, so they they did that. You know, they they got these planes and then they had tried to sell them, like the U.S. Forest Service. Yeah. Added, uh, more like two guys in the Forest Service, but. Oh really? It was like a skunk works project. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It was the two of the top-ish guys. Um, but uh, some guys, a, a civilian, heard that somebody was selling C-130 planes because you know that doesn't happen very often. And when he called the Forest Service, they had already kind of gotten word that the Forest Service had already kind of gotten word that um, somebody was catching on. So they told this other guy who was calling to buy a plane. Mm -hmm. Sorry, we're not selling any more planes. And he got pissed and gathered evidence and went on a vindictive run to out them and... (laughs) uh, basically was the reason that this whole scandal really came to light whoa yeah and so he was, he was just story. he was just mad because he wasn't getting sold these planes yeah so he sold them out or exactly. called them out i guess but that was actually just a tiny footnote in my in my regular or in my overall topic yeah um so when i got back from italy i landed at the airport and i got out um and we're, we're heading home, and I, I right away, as soon as we got outside, I noticed that there was a haze in the air, mm. um, and that it was pretty thick. And, I, you know, but I, I it's happened before and, and whatever. But as we're on the highway, and now we're facing the Rocky Mountains, driving mm-hmm. towards them from uh, the airport, you can't even see the mountains. Oh. Like, they're, they're behind this haze completely. And I really noticed how thick this was. And so what had happened that particular day was there had been no wind for the past three days. So a fire in Durango, Colorado, which is three and a half hours away from where I am, mm-hmm. um, 
the smoke had been flowing over to us for three days and no wind was making it leave. It was so thick that they, they issue air advisories and stuff like that from time to time. But that day they were like, seriously, if you can avoid going outside, please do. Because wow. it's it's really bad out there. And I'm not joking. Like from where I'm sitting, I can see the mountains. And yep. on, that, on that day, sitting in this same chair, I could not see the mountains. And they're only a couple miles away. Damn. So my topic is wildfires and the fighting of the wildfires and just some general stuff about them and, and the Forest Service and all that because it's, uh, it's a thing now that happens every single year. And it has happened every single year, but obviously one of the themes on this show is we're very concerned with the future and the fires are a very in-your-face thing and a very mm-hmm. scary uh result of climate change and also as i'll get into some some human meddling so uh, the uh forest service... i mean there's there's fires going on right now as we speak oh sure i, I mean actually... obviously the one you talked about but i mean all over california are, and all there that. are currently 35 fires in the u.s wow 35 fires worth talking about hmm uh, we won't talk. We won't talk about them. But I did grab that. <laughs> and we, we're I did grab, list them. <laughs> I did grab that stat because it's yeah. And you're right. Most of them are in California. Yeah. Uh, there's there's three in Colorado, a couple in Alaska, and I think Oregon. Doesn't matter. Okay. So before we get into the fires and some of the crazy stuff about them, just mm-hmm. the the Forest Service, the, the United States Forest Service, is uh-huh. the main body that is concerned with the wildfires although certainly individual states have their own versions of it and then there's also oh, a forest separate services yeah federal national yeah federal uh yeah yep okay and then um there is also the separate federal entity of the bureau of land management mm-hmm. which is a more you know the forest service to real deals obviously with forests and then they work in conjunction with the blm um but so the Forest Service was started in 1905. It was the brainchild of Theodore Roosevelt's conservation group, Boone and Crockett Club. Yes. And they, which, by the way, uh, maybe he deserves an entire couple episodes, really. Uh, Theodore. I, yeah, I agree with that. Theodore is crazy, and in, in the best possible way. He's yeah. awesome. He's a. I would American like to learn to more core. about him. Actually, that's a yeah, good point. Yeah, he's an American to the core, or was. So. Yeah, him and his buddies, uh, you know, because 1980, or I'm sorry, 1874, I believe, was the yellow the Yellowstone became a thing. And mm-hmm. so from right around that time, he and his his group, you know, were, were concerned with the, the state of, of uh, you know, the natural world in our, in our country. So 1905, it became an actual thing um, and got a budget and all that. And it's changed. Mm-hmm. It's changed. Uh, like the army originally was the overarching body uh, and it's changed hands a few times. But right now it's, I think it actually was just moved to the department of the interior. I think I have that right. Anyway. So one of the things that uh, has been realized over the course of history, you know, the hundred years, 110, yeah. 113 years is initially the Forest Service, their policy for fires was by 10 a.m. the morning after a fire is found, it mm-hmm. needs to be put. It needs to be put out. 
That so, seems like an un- impractical. I'm sure it was for a lot of reasons, but their policy effectively boiled down to put the fire, put all fires out as quickly as possible. That's yeah, effectively right. what that means. Yeah. Um, but isn't that going to, I mean, if you have a big ass fire, that's a lot harder to put out by 10 a.m. than. Um, <laughs> I think it had less to fire. do with, I think it had less. I'm not sure people were getting fined with, with not <laughs> making the 30. 10 a.m. deadline because we're certainly <laughs> not making the 10 a.m. deadline today. No, not at all. It's impossible. Um, so this extreme fire suppression, it's called, um, mm-hmm. was implemented up through the sixties and eventually you'll hear it common knowledge today, but it, or at least when you're hearing about fires at least in Colorado, NPR, the only thing they talk about right now is, is the fires cause it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, CPR actually, sorry. Um, so it was eventually realized in the 60s and then officially fixed in the early 70s with a policy change that by suppressing all these fires, uh, all the fuel, all the combustible material that normally would have been burned away is just sitting there building and building and building and building. So that eventually when it does catch on fire, usually these days by human interaction, previously mm-hmm. all <clears throat> fire, almost all fires were started by lightning strikes. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. And uh, still plenty of them are today, um, but humans obviously have uh, increased the amount of fires. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a, when a fire would start, all this vegetation and a dead vegetation and all this fuel that had been building sometimes for 50 years, uh-huh. it just creates a fire far worse than wow. than normal. And it was eventually learned um, that, you know, fire was part of the for- a forest's natural life cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've one heard of that the way, before. The quoted way, I'm sure there were a couple people tuning into this at the time, but the sort of the stated fact or the, mm-hmm. the catalyst, they noticed that in the 60s in the California forests, no new redwoods were growing and hadn't been growing for some time. And that's that's when they made the connection because the California redwood tree requires fires to happen so that the seeds have the right conditions to grow. So because of like the the nutrients being put back into the ground or I I actually didn't look into that, but I would guess it's something it's something to that effect. Maybe the trees drop when they sense fires coming. They they release seeds and then that Hmm. starts the cycle or they just need the space (laughs) or that other shit to clear out. Who knows? I could maybe well, do I'm a sure fa- somebody knows. I don't know is what I'm saying. No, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, they noticed no new trees were showing up, and they were like, oh, man, maybe. And so that propagated. And then in the mm-hmm. uh, 1978, the 10 a.m. thing, 10 a.m. thing was abandoned. Okay. Six, 1968 was sort of the non-official. Sorry. 1964, a report came out that said this version of fire suppression is bad. And then in 68... They're like, okay, we're going to allow certain fires to run their course unless they threaten developed areas. And then in okay. 78, 78, they put the final thing and said, okay, that 10 a.m. thing is, is nonsense. So that's hmm. a little history. On... Interesting. So, so... We're, and, and we're still dealing with this problem right now, the whole uh, combustible fuel thing, like building up. We still yeah, got a problem. Right. Like it's still, you know, it's still a thing. Is there any other advantage that you're aware of or that you came across of 
to wildfires other than directly to the forest. And the reason I'm asking that is because you said, you know, some fires have to, we have to let them run their course unless they are interfering with developed areas. And I'm thinking, okay, we're developing more and more and more and more, um, which could result in us putting out more fires actively. Um, is that interfering with anything else other than the, the forest life cycle, like anything in the atmosphere or anything like that? Um, not that I found specifically. I mean, certainly the developed areas, we, we've already developed them. So any fuels and whatnot are being removed. So the environmental, yeah. the environmental impact there is the fact that we're developing the area sure. Well, sure. And, definitely... and removing whatever natural stuff was right. going on. Um, reducing the amount of stuff there is to even burn. Right. Right. Um, I'm Granted, I, now... don't, I don't remember what the, the actual coverage and percentage, like of the amount of land on the planet, how much of it's actually developed land. I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. It's I a lot know. less than you think it is. We tend to congregate in cities. Mm-hmm. And, and most of my stuff that I, uh, my, I gathered was about the, the act of, of fighting these fires, because um, I thought that that was really oh, okay. interesting. Um, but I wanted to give a little history of why we even are in the position we're in. And then obviously fires in general, again, they happen. Lightning strikes, I've witnessed it myself. Um, I don't know if a fire started the night that I was uh, I was up in the mountains with a friend and we could we were on a deck and we were overlooking uh, the forests mm-hmm. that were in front of us and there was a thunderstorm going on and we were just watching strike after strike hit these wow. trees. Wow. Like I'm going to say 15 separate lightning strikes that just hit the ground or the trees in the area. Okay. Wow. And I mean, you could easily see how fires were totally a natural thing. And if, yeah. and if, a, and if a forest did not know how to deal with a fire, it wasn't going to survive because mm-hmm. these lightning strikes just happen. Yeah. That's a good point. Huh? Okay. Um, let's see. That makes me think of when we were standing in mom and dad's garage that one night when that thunderstorm was going on and it hit the tree in the back yep. side of the neighborhood and just <laughs> blew tree bits all over the place. I still have pictures of that. Yeah. I was just I was looking at them not too long ago. Yeah, blew, um, blew wood through the person's house that was right nearby. Just like demolished their back wall. <laughs> the sound that thing made was incredible. Holy like, shit. Um, so the we're talking bit more like a hundred foot pine tree that just got, <laughs> just got like annihilated the, <laughs> down like to the, the, down to the stump. Yep. And the base of the trunk, like the widest part of the tree was what? Well, I have a picture of you trying to wrap your arms around it, I believe. And you, yeah. And I can't, I don't think thing you is, can. thing is huge. Yeah. And it, as you said, it got completely obliterated <laughs> to the point where like the sap and the, excuse me, the sap and stuff of it inside of it like some of it was like singed and it was nuts yeah yeah but then there were some pieces that were just like this beautiful wood grain that never seen the light of day until that exact moment yeah you know so it was just like really fresh and and pretty cool looking so last thing on the forest server just to give you an idea i didn't Mm -hmm. grab any other i didn't grab any other departments for comparison but it's just poignant to me they're budget has been steadily decreasing uh they got 5.8 billion dollars in 2008 uh they're currently about 1 billion less than that 4.73 and they've been spending so in 2000 with a 5.8 billion dollar budget they spent 42 mm-hmm. percent 
of that money directly on fire fighting and fire suppression. Mm-hmm. And that, so with a decrease of a billion, that percentage they're spending has gone up 10%. So they're now at 52% of their budget is spent directly with forest, you know, fighting and managing wildfires. That's interesting. That's not a direct correlation. No, and it's just... Because they lost more than 10% of their budget. Right, right. That's interesting. They but lost, like, they lost almost... losing money, money, and we're not losing the amount of fires that we have to fight. No, no, they are steadily <laughs> increasing. Yeah. <laughs> Who's making so, that decision? Uh, you know, they submit... Well, they submit a budget, and then mm-hmm. it gets approved or denied by, yeah. I'm going to guess, a Congress or maybe a particular committee... Um, but honestly, who exactly is doing all that? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, and sorry, one other thing on the, uh, the air tanker scandal, uh, there was, um, <laughs> in 1994, when this was going on, uh-huh. uh, 14 firefighters were killed in the South Canyon fire in Colorado. And one of the stated deficiencies in that effort was the Air support was inadequate for implementing strategies and tactics. So the Forest Service, with a bit of a stretch, had an active hand in ending some lives by getting rid of planes that were originally supposed to be used to fight wildfires. And I shouldn't say the Forest Service as a whole. That's egregious. It's uh, It was two guys. So these planes, yeah, these planes would have been used otherwise, ideally at least. Yeah. For fighting fires, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are the okay? Maybe you didn't get this far, but are those planes still around? Those exact planes? Yeah, I want to know yeah. who owns them and, oh, and oh, if they're being no. serviced. And flown, I don't know, no, or I if they're know. rotting in a field somewhere. I don't know. I mean, C one thirty is absolutely you can mm-hmm. still maintain. So. Oh yeah, totally. Okay, so that's a little bit about. Um, Forest Service, and then so the the whole procedure. So what spawned all this was one the getting off the plane and just seeing the haze, which was eventually figured out was smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually, just a quick side note: once the winds finally did come, they were quite aggressive. The following, uh, actually that day, that afternoon, the smoke was cleared out. I mean, it was crazy. It went from in the space of about 20 minutes. That's the the weather here in Colorado can be quite aggressive. Um, in a, in the space of about 20 minutes, the winds kicked up and some rain fell and the smoke was gone. Like that's mm. how fast it happened. That was it. Um, so what spawned this was, or what sparked this idea was that, and then also anytime you hear fire talks about fire and the reports of fire, they talk about the fires being so many percent contained so 10 percent yeah, contained, 20 yeah, yeah. contained okay and yeah, i was what like what the hell mean? does that mean oh i'm actually i'm so, looking at a the pawnee fire which is one of the biggest ones i think in california right now i just have this article open because um, it had a map and it says it's five percent contained by tuesday afternoon there <laughs> there you go okay so i'll explain what that means in, in a minute sweet um because that's really what i want to know because like i my first thought was it was going to be some bogus doesn't really make sense it's some it's some dumbed down version some like, of what's yeah some you know? easy way to report it right but um it's actually it's, it's pretty on but anyway so since uh since 1995 that's uh, sort of when these 
these methods and stuff have really been set into place and obviously they're constantly evolving and whatnot but that's sort of the reference point um they basically show up and uh the very first thing that firefighters do is set up safety zones so they basically set up areas where they pre-build uh, like fire fire lines and and whatnot to get communications first mm -hmm. aid stations set up you know a base of operations but such that it's also protected and put in a logical location usually with a lake a road some other fire impassable barrier is usually ideally on on a couple sides but almost always at least on one side so they okay. have a, a they have a flank that's that's totally protected and they can they can manage the other three flanks. Mm -hmm. So they um, and the, one of the other main goals of this is to with the with the communications and the spotters that they set up and all that they are their one of their main focuses is to prevent entrapment, which is exactly what it sounds like and must be horrifying because oh, can't God. think. Yeah, exactly. Just no. Just yeah. being surrounded by flames. So, you, and, so what would happen is, you know, maybe a group of firefighters are fighting a particular area, and it just unknowingly surrounds them from the backside, right. basically. Right. They've been focused on this just... one spot for an hour. Oh Jesus Christ! And they they turn around, and you know, it wouldn't God. be right at their backs necessarily, but a hundred no, yards they, away, they... two hundred yards away, they realize, oh shit, there's no way out. Oh my God. So you know, what do you do? So I imagine that I well obviously, but you, your eyes in the sky are got to be so critical for this. But Huge. how close can they get with all of the smoke? Although I guess pretty. maybe the the smoke's probably going in a general direction. Yeah, that and that. Uh, that and pretty close actually, yeah. especially the helicopters. Yeah, that's true. They're able to deal with that. Um. So once they've got the the base of the base camp set up and they've got it, what they call an anchor point, you know, a lake, a river, whatever. Um, okay. They. Ideally, the, the base camp and the anchor point are in the same location, and you start working from that point uh, outwards, but not they're okay. not always in the same spot. Um, but they pick, uh, they, they plan out a plan of attack, and there's, there's two categories, a direct attack and an indirect. Mm -hmm. So direct is what you might imagine. It's, it's guys standing with hoses. Um, it's, it's wetting, smothering, or chemically quenching the fire. Um, also, okay. yeah, so, you know, directly like fighting a house fire kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then the indirect involves prepping future burn sites uh, to prevent the fire from spreading. So this is oh, fire lines, oh, removal, removing fuel, wetting fuel that you can't move. Yeah. Uh, back burning, which I'll, I'll explain is, a, is an interesting one. And control lines. Uh, actually, I think those are the same thing. Oh, no. Fire lines and control signs are slightly different, but there hmm. um that's, that's really interesting actually so a control line and a fire line well a control line attempts to send the fire in a particular direction a fire line i guess just to, attempts to stop it okay. but these are and this is what where the containment number comes in so they basically from that anchor point they take a, a bulldozer or any equipment that they can use or mm -hmm. if they're having a shitty day by hand <laughs> They're digging, um, if they've got the equipment, they're digging a 12 to 10 foot wide, usually a couple feet deep uh, trench. Oh. And from, from the anchor point, 
along the line of the fire. They are just digging this trench to stop it. With what? Bulldozers yeah. by hand. Getting the heavy uh, equipment in there. He- heavy equipment if they can do it, by hand if they if they can't. Wow. Uh, I have to imagine that the fire lines are smaller when they're doing it by hand, but yeah. I don't, know. I don't yeah. honestly know. Um, and so that's the containment number. The containment number represents how much of this trench has been built around the known perimeter of the fire. So oh, no shit. If the, yeah, yeah. So if the perimeter of the fire is... Not what I thought know, at all. Yeah. So 5% is not a lot. No. Obviously, it's, fi- it's no. only 5%, but... Yeah. You know, you got a long ways to go. But if that doesn't, just since we're working in percentages here, that doesn't at all mean that they haven't built a fuck ton of trenches. It depends on how big the exactly, fire is. exactly. Five percent could be miles of trenches. Yeah. Whoa. So that's where that containment number comes from. Okay. I thought that was that, that makes was that makes a lot of sense now in the way that it's written and now that you're explaining it. Yeah. So it's not just some cop out as far as. Will they ever try to use natural? formations as part of the containment so like built, you know build the trench up next to or adjacent to a river or something so that you can use part of the river as and just yeah, let the they, fire go to the river if, if they can con- if they can connect to anchor points absolutely yeah, yeah. makes sense as long as um no houses in the way they use a tool called a um shit i had this a drop, oh damn it! A dip torch, excuse me. Dip torch. It's just—it's a fancy. Um, let me see what I wrote down to describe this thing. It's a fire lighting tool, um, which sounds counterintuitive, but I'll, as I I'll explain say, in a second. It doesn't here. sound like what you want to be doing. <laughs> um, a lot of a couple of the methods that they have, a couple of the tools in the toolbox, are uh-huh. starting other fires, and I'll explain in a second. What? Um, so the dip torch is a is a large it's a canister of fuel with a spout that is prevent designed to not allow uh, fire to go back up the spout obviously, um, but it's this it's a convenient way it's got a wick and it's got fuel and it's a convenient way to basically hold fire and and touch brush with this thing to get it to light. Um, giant candlestick. Pretty much. Yeah. And the reason you would do this is because you're either uh, you're either pre-burning fuel that's in the path of the fire. Mm-hmm. So basically you can you can set up an area where you know the fire is going to want to go. And you provoke it that way a little bit. You can provoke it that way using a control line or you can burn the fuel that's there. So you've got all your fire trucks and everything and, and you got everybody set up and you know yeah. that the fire's coming this way. If you can do it, you can just burn that area in a controlled state so that the fuel's gone. So that by the time the uncontrolled fire shows up, there's nothing to burn. Huh. The other version of yeah. it is, okay. is back burning where, um, oh, sorry, I was just looking at my note to make sure I got this right. Okay, so once you've got the control line built, so um, and but you've built it obviously well ahead of the main perimeter, you know, because you don't want to get you don't want to get burned while you're building this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically do a form. They they start burning that fuel that's downwind of the main fire, and so on. Sorry, let me back up. 
you've got the main fire, mm-hmm. and then you've got the control line. In between okay. those two, you've got unburned fuel. Yeah. Back burning is the process of burning that fuel that's in between the two. Okay. So that that again, you've 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 built your control line, which is your your absolute backup, but then you're also burning out all that other fuel, knowing that you've got the control line, so that the main fire basically never reaches the control line. But effectively, you're burning the whole area anyway. So what's the difference of back burning versus just building the control line and letting the fire come up to the line anyway? Probably reasons there? I don't understand. <laughs> just in the sense of like, I'm I sure there are certain. Your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are certain situations where they feel like, okay, maybe maybe the control line's pretty close to building. Well, no, but you're gonna light that shit on fire anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like, why? That's a good question. That's a good yeah. question. I don't know. Maybe it's just a way to kind of like buffer the fire a little bit, so it's not extreme all the way up until the line, like. You know what I mean? It's a way to kind of just bring it, hit the brakes a little bit up into the line rather than having it come to a hard stop. Right. Maybe that's just more advantageous. It is going to burn anyway, right? So might as well make it easier. Right. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) It's a good theory, or at least seems it. It's a theory. It's a theory. There you go. A um, couple of their tactics, they do um, cold trailing. Uh, once the fire is swept through an area, they'll go mm-hmm. through and make sure that uh, all the fuel has been burned, there are no remaining embers, basically make sure that the fire can't come back that way. Hmm. So, I'm going to, sorry to stop you here. But no, 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 you're good, you're good. Firefighting is almost a little misleading of a term, and not to downplay it at all, it's almost like fire... Management. Fire management, fire tending. You're babysitting this thing so that it doesn't, you know, hit the other kids. Like Totally. totally. <laughs> because you can't stop it. No. Right? Fully. Um, the, the fire that's the out here. Dur- the Durango fire that's out here, it's huge. It's, yeah. it's huge. Yeah. You're so, just doing your best to make sure it doesn't, you know. And then as we said earlier, depending on the situation, uh, you you actually want to let it burn. Yeah, totally. Because you might sense. as well let you... It's already on fire, and as long as you've got it contained from harming uh, developed areas, mm-hmm. our di- our directive is to let it burn now. Yeah. Which yeah, is a good, that fuel is a good there, thing. right? So, yep, yep. Um, hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, one of the other... Ta- well, a couple more tactics, but... Uh, they w- have been known to uh, use explosives when they're oh. having trouble digging the control lines. Oh, okay. If, yeah. If they, you know, so they'll they'll blow stuff up at certain points. To, mm-hmm. uh, basically, uh, it's an efficiency thing. So when they're yeah. building that control line and the fire is moving quick, mm-hmm. they'll start blowing they'll start blowing stuff up. Which is. Do awesome. you have any information or stats on time? Like, what's the longest, or even maybe an average? taken to contain fires like these these big ones that are notable oh i don't have any statistics in front of me but i can just Mm -hmm. tell you my anecdotal experience i mean some of them take literal weeks like yeah yeah like a month with hundreds of people actively oh yeah yeah and dude the pictures of these guys after they're done fighting i mean they look like that for a second dude they've been through a battle they've been through a, a fucking war that's crazy 
And it's crazy you know, that anybody would sign up for that. Yeah. Like, I can't well, wait, imagine signing up for that. I'm too I'll, much I'll, of a Sally for that, I think. I'll jump to them, but they're, uh, the craziest ones, they're called smoke jumpers. Smoke jumpers. Okay. And 1940 was when they first uh, started coming around, but they're, uh, they, uh, when you've got fires that are in remote areas mm-hmm. that, that need putting out, mm-hmm. um, one of the first people to get in there sometimes is firefighters that parachute in. Oh shit! What? And so that they parachute in, and Just they so that's uh, the fastest way to get there. Yeah. What do they? And what can you reasonably bring with you though if you're parachuting in? So you've got all your hand tools, right? That you're going to start clearing fuel with and building a control line. <laughs> and then I have to imagine. Uh, I don't. I don't. I didn't pull numbers or any or not numbers. I didn't pull any info for this, but I would have to imagine that they're also dropping uh, crates. Of stuff, yeah, because yeah, yeah. um, we can, we Damn. can, we can, the army can definitely do that at this point. Not that the Forest Service is the army, but dropping equipment is is totally realistic. How does how does a person get in that? Good question. How, do, how does that life start? Like, is there an Indeed job posting for you know smoke jumpers? <laughs> I don't know how you get that particular job other than going to the Forest Service That's and saying crazy. I like. But there are certainly firefighting credentials that you have to get oh, before sure. you can before you can apply to be a, uh, even a forest firefighter, let alone a smoke jumper. Mm-hmm. So in the in the ranking of firefighters, is forest fire fighter higher than you know your typical yes. person fighting house fires and stuff? Yep. Yeah, makes sense. You, yeah, you can basically think of it as. Yeah, you can think of it as class one versus class two. And then smoke jumpers are like, I don't even know what. So you're in support of a class system. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a license. It's a licensing system. It's a little different. Different. It's a visual. Uh, Okay, so some of the other equipment. um, Obviously, go ahead. I was going to say, you're definitely going to talk about like helicopters and planes, right? Definitely. That's the first two on the list. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we, I hope everybody's seen video or pictures of the planes dropping that red liquid because it's amazing. And mm-hmm. at least my first thought was, boy, that doesn't seem all that effective. That's that what was I was going to f- say. It doesn't look like very much. Yeah, it doesn't look like it would be all that effective. Yeah. Um, and that's true from a certain – if it's just water and uh-huh. it's not a very skilled pilot – then, I yeah, was gonna say. I think, I would imagine that the precision and thought that goes into where, as you're describing now, the control line and all this stuff, the way you place that is going to make it matters. most effective, not the amount. Yeah, matters very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the liquid that they're dropping was another thing I was very curious about. So obviously, it's mostly water. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, oh shit, where did I put that? Oh, here we go. Uh, is known as slurry. The red liquid is known mm. as slurry. Yum. Um, don't uh, don't don't drink this stuff. Don't look up when they're dropping it. Uh, it's not gonna be. It's not gonna be good. Um, well, I mean, if you're in the area where it's being dropped, you're probably on fire, right? Well, yes and no. Um, there's actually a couple of videos out there of. 2017 California fires where people's houses were getting dumped on. 
Oh shit. And pe- and some people did not evacuate, so they were still in their house. And so there's a relatively famous video, I guess, or just viral video, whatever, of a guy he steps outside. The plane's mm-hmm. coming directly at him. It's obviously crazy low. Yeah. And they drop the, they drop this stuff, and you can't see anything but red for a few minutes or seconds. Whoa. Okay. So it's mostly water, and mm-hmm. then it's got uh, ammonium phosphate or sulfate, which mm-hmm. act as fertilizers for replenishing the forest afterwards. Okay. It's got guar gum, G-U-A-R, guar mm-hmm. gum, or clay. This is a thickener. Yep. And then it's got yeah, iron oxide. Yeah, a lot. Yep. Then it's got iron oxide, which it gets you the red color, which helps people on the ground, you know, see what happened. Okay. And then uh, the iron oxide itself doubles as uh, fire retardant. Oh, interesting. That's it? That's all that's there? That's all that's in it. Huh. So water, so, ammonia, I mean... phosphate, or sulfur. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly water. But the it, it should be noted that the, the iron oxide and the clay make the water much more than just water, obviously. I mean, is there anything toxic about ingesting it? Oh, the sulfate and the, the phosphate. Are... Right? The sulfates, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want... Yeah. You don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, though. Yeah. Um, so as I said, uh, C-130s can be used, which are the sort of, if if anybody has an image of a military cargo plane in their head, it's probably a C-130. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it's, it's interesting um, and not, well, it's not interesting. It's normal, I guess. The government vehicles are older. So you've got C-130s, you've got Lockheed P-2Vs. I'm not a plane guy, but old that's an older prop plane. Mm-hmm. There are private companies that our government will pay. There are private companies that operate these vehicles as well. And their vehicles are to the nines. Like Interesting. <laughs> so privately operated, and... yeah, privately operated DC-10s, which are almost purpose-built for this, or at least that version of the DC-10, Mm-hmm. Is purpose built for this? Like it's a totally bespoke aircraft designed for this, and our government isn't the one that owns it. They charter it from a private company, or they huh. pay, or, the, or they just pay the private company altogether yeah, to to help fight. Yeah. Um, these things hold the the DC tens at least hold uh, twelve thousand gallons. That's hard to imagine. I guess how much that is. Yeah, but... I should have grabbed a. Um, let me see if I can pull up. Uh... Do they ever it. use the slurry as a way to, um, I forget the term you use, but basically defuel an area? So an area that could potentially burn, like, do you ever dump that there to Definitely. prevent that area from, you don't just dump it on fire all the time, right, to put out an active Definitely. fire, you might use it to do preventative maintenance. Prep an area, yep. yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny, I don't know how true this is, but an anecdote that I read while researching everything was that... Um, I don't know how you get this request in or, or what, but apparently they've dropped unused slurry on farming fields just so that the fertilizer gets used. <laughs> okay. Actually, that, I was thinking while you were explaining it, is there anything that we could, like, dump on the fires that, like, we really need to get rid of? Like, we have some sort of waste <laughs> or trash material that, like, we could just kind of double dip in this? Yeah, but then you're going to be, your forests are going to be all shitty. Yeah, well, I was thinking put on the fire and it's burning anyway. I was just wondering plastic. if we could use this to <laughs> styrofoam and plastics, old tires. 
Okay, real batteries quick. Batteries, too. Definitely batteries. Yeah, batteries. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, this probably won't help. An eight-foot-deep, 10-foot-by-20-foot rectangle pool. So eight feet deep, mm-hmm. 10 feet by 20 feet is exactly 12,000 gallons. Huh. Yeah, I mean... I don't know what that looks that much. Like. No. It doesn't feel it's like that It's not a ton. Much. It's not a ton. Relative to the size of these fires, but... Yeah. Um, oh, they have to make... I mean, they make multiple make, passes. Yeah, I was just going to say. Tons. Making tons of passes. So the planes, uh, they actually skim the water. It's crazy. They drop these... They either have um, uh, sort of intakes that fold out, Ooh. or uh, you can drop you can drop pipes out that have pumps on the other end yep. that that will pull water. Then the, <laughs> obviously the pumps so, have to be strong enough to handle the fact that the plane is going the same direction. Uh, how do I describe this? You know, the, the pipe, the end that's in the water, yeah. is moving through the water in the same direction as the plane, obviously. Yeah. And is actually going to probably create a little air cavity right behind oh, totally. it. So yeah. The pumps have to be strong enough to overcome all that. And the design of that's got to be pretty wild. Yeah. So are they? So that, does that mean when the plane goes back to base, they're loading it with a slurry concentrate, and then it just skims the water to get the right mixture? Ooh. Yeah, probably. I didn't even think of that. Because I mean, you don't want to just. I mean, it would make sense if you're I, able I, to scoop I up bet... the water. That's a good way to do it quicker, probably. I bet the planes already have tanks of slurry concentrate on board. That's true. You could. Yeah, because it would be advantageous if, you know, I understand you have a, a capacity of a certain amount, but if you could skim the lake without having to fully land and re-up every time, you could have multiple, let's say you have three slurry which is, concentrate Which is what tanks. these things, which is what these things do. Yeah. yeah, so you could, you'd just be a lot faster if you could keep, you know, skim in the lake, do a pass, drop it, go get some more water. Maybe get like a couple times. five passes, yeah. Yeah, whatever it is, but more That's than one. That's a good observation. I bet they have tanks of it on board. And if they That'd don't, cool. they can they can reach out to us and right. pay us for I see some white space. <laughs> <laughs> also just, dumping the batteries. Let me just on the let fire. me just fill That's that fine. in. Yeah, <laughs> I do it too. Just so everybody I've knows. Read a, I've read studies that batteries are actually quite nutritious and good for deer and stuff. They're good for fires. They'll definitely make the fire grow. <laughs> Especially if we're dumping some lithium-ion batteries on there. Mm. Um, I didn't do as much research on the helicopters. Um, they're they're more uh, they're more just regular helicopters for the most part. Um, I mean, there's certainly... don't downplay regular helicopters though. No, 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 no. Of course not. <laughs> um, but the the trick there is the buckets that they're using. So the helicopters operate by. Um, I mean, some of them. Actually, I did see pictures of helicopters with with uh, a bay that, excuse me, that uh, contains the the water, much like the planes do, where okay. the bay opens like dropping yeah. bombs. Yeah. So so those ones, I guess, are are purposely built. But mm-hmm. you can certainly just go buy a a water bag that's been obviously specially designed for this purpose, but and then put that on the bottom of of a, a properly rated helicopter, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then go do your thing. So that's the way those... you describe that re- makes me think of like you know those home built helicopter projects, <laughs> just like some dude in a out in rural Colorado who's got himself a helicopter and he's like, yeah, I'm today I'm gonna try to fight this fire too. And he just goes and buys a bag, and he gets out there and 
gives it his best. Yeah, and <laughs> and 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 if he were, he could uh, he could just. I mean, they have license when when this is going on. A helicopter has every right to show up to your pool, dip its bucket in the pool, and leave. Like your swimming pool. Like your swimming pool. It's oh. there. Are, if you Google that, there are plenty of pictures of forest fighting helicopters, forest fire fighting helicopters showing up saying your pool is the closest source of water I'm, ta- <laughs> I'm taking it that's amazing that's it's really awesome actually <laughs> that happened to me i'd be so happy um who okay so i just thought about this like you have all these all these people involved in all these different tactics and potentially joe from middle of nowhere colorado with his home-built helicopter coming to help <laughs> Who's managing this? Who's coordinating the efforts? That's going to be the 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 Forest Service firefighters at those base camps. Yeah. Um, so and they have ranks. You know, they have ranks. Yeah, just like, for sure. Uh, so there is there just is going to be a captain. That's crazy. Yeah, there's going to be a captain who's got maps and yeah, he's right. he's getting all the reports of the different fire lines and the different what squads that are out there. It's, it's basically it's basically a military unit in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Because you're, so, I mean, you're, you're controlling the people, and then you're also, you're organizing the, dealing with or at least predicting the fire and all that, and I mean, totally, that's, that's a pretty badass position. And I'm sure hold. you've, I'm sure you've got people under you if you're the top dude whose specialties are doing that, and then they come up to you oh, yeah. for final decision making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, that's the planes and the. Uh, and the helicopters a bit about them. Uh, Russia actually has the biggest um, Russia, Canada, and the United States. Those are the three that have this problem, really. Oh, like really? plenty of other places have forest fires for sure, mm-hmm. but those three that I just listed are the only ones with like smoke jumpers and hmm. that level of sophistication. Because um, like down is. in. Well, South America rainforest is too wet. Um, okay. Europe is too developed in a lot of ways. I uh, mean, certainly really? there's forests and stuff, but um, it's just not the right climate, really. I yeah. mean, there's there's yeah. definitely fires. Like, Italy has forest fires for sure. Like, mm-hmm. that belt, like, the, in that area. Yeah. But then, you know, there's this desert in the Iran-Iraq type areas. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. It's too cold up in the Norway type area. It's... You know, so this belt, like America and specifically the Midwest and the West, sits in the, in the, in the well, the East, but the East is too wet for this. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, that sweet. that band support. right along that band right around the Earth, which yeah. all, Russia also sits in for well, a lot of it does, is uh, is the active area. Um, Russia's I forgot the name of the plane. I didn't write it down, but Russia's firefighting plane mm-hmm. is dope looking. Really? It's the biggest. It's got so <laughs> many sweet. engines. It's got huge <laughs> swept. the The wings are really swept. It's uh-huh. it's cool looking. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so just a couple other. We'll finish up here. Some of the, I grabbed a list of hand tools that they use, that our guys use. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously shovels and flare gun. You know they have a flare gun, which I thought was funny because, you know, if they're lost or whatever, and they shoot that flare up, you know, all I can think about was starting another fire with the flare. <laughs> <laughs> like the rookie on the jobs. Oh, shit, right, shit. right, right. Um, they bring um, 
chainsaws with them and radios mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple interesting ones. They bring uh, hydrometers, basically to okay. measure the amount of humidity, and that's going to help them. Well, they'll send that info back to the head guy, and that's going to help them make decisions about where they think the fire is going to go or not go. Okay. Um, they use, they call it a fire. They have a lot of names for these things, but really they're just rakes or whatever. Um, the fire flapper is a large broom <laughs> or leaf rake and it's used to smother fires. Mm-hmm. The pickeroon, uh, is a log is originally a logging tool, but it, uh, it's a long, it's a pole with a, a 90 degree angle at the top with a blade coming off that 90 degree angle. And you basically, you would swing this thing at a log and it would stick into the log and then you could drag mm-hmm. the log wherever you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> sorry. Just they've... Funny visuals. <laughs> um, they've got a Halligan bar, which is a mm-hmm. tool with a, with a pick on the one side and an ADZ, A-D-Z-E, ADZ, mm-hmm. I think is how you say that, mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, if you imagine the backside of a hammer, the part that you would normally use to, to pull nails, yeah, take out the nail pulling part and sharpen that end, the the pointed end of that, so it's a flat, like a pickaxe. Well, it's yeah, the backside of a pickaxe, yeah, yeah. But it's it does have a name, a d z e, a d s, uh-huh. a days, however you say that. A d s, um, yeah. And so when uh, they've got this, this is pretty cool though. When you have got both your Halligan bar and your axe, mm-hmm. you have you have your irons. That's what Ooh, it's called. That's what that's called. Yeah, you got yeah, your irons. Ass. Yeah, that's pretty. Dude, cool. Everything about this is way <laughs> cooler and more badass than I expected. Yeah. Way more it's intricate fun. of an effort. Um, what is? Can you try to explain? Maybe you came across this a little bit, but like. What does this look like for some of the guys on the front lines? Because obviously in my head, when I'm thinking about fighting this fire, I'm thinking of like a blaze that's 100 feet tall and just this wall of fire that's dramatic and and movie-esque. But is it more of like patchy fires that together make up one giant fire? It's Um, it's everything. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that if the fire is 100 feet tall, nobody's near it. Yeah, right. Nobody, right. there. No, you're not doing any sort of. You're not doing a direct attack on that. Right, you're, of course. You're a couple football fields back or further, probably building a fire line. You're home. You're like, fuck yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, that makes sense. I mean, the heat and the, the effort it would take to even stop something like that. But then the patchy thing too, I think, is is a real thing too, mm-hmm. uh, and and probably one of the more common things because, you know. The, the fuel is not always going to be continuous. So yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting how they might break up a fire, like what, excuse me, how far apart a fire has to be from another one for it to be considered another system. Um, oh, pretty far, I would guess. Far, yeah. I've looked at, I'm, I'm, this is anecdotal, but I've looked at like maps of our forest fires mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what what they label a single fire can yeah, span. well, this map that I, I'm looking at now, which is quite zoomed out, I mean, I'm looking at half the U.S. at least, um, it looks like you guys, according to this map, which was posted... Um, you got this website with the yellow background? No, this is on Newsweek. Um, oh, okay, never mind. So I don't know how updated this is, but there's five, no, four, excuse me, fires on this map in the southwest corner of Colorado. 
Yeah, that'll be yeah. Durango area. So, that's Durango, okay. And they're pretty close together on this map, but they're they're labeling it as four okay. separate. Okay. I mean, they're not right on top of each other, obviously, but they're inhabiting that four, or that corner. Yep. Um, but who knows how accurate this map is. Interesting. Well, I'm amazed at how what this actually looks like as far as fighting these things. I had no idea. I'll end with, um, yeah, it's it's pretty wild and uh, scary. I mean, that hunt, I mean, there's videos. Anybody, you know, definitely. I mean, you'll scare yourself, but um, yeah. there was a fire last year. I'm forgetting exactly where, but it was on the other side of. It was near. Uh, it was near Joe Rogan. It was in California somewhere, and on mm-hmm. the other side of the river, from where the film is, is a hill, like the hill or the river. Oh yeah, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. The whole thing is on fire, and yeah. it looks like apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It was people driving, like they were commuting to work on the highway or something, and just like the hill in front of them is on fire. Just on fire. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. So I'll end off with uh, some stats here, um, or just some some quick fun facts that not fun but interesting. <laughs> Um, they keep large tanks of water strategically placed in the wilderness for later use. Um, most, well, I, I, I first found that most are still started by lightning, but as I went through, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's the case. So hmm. let's forget that one. <laughs> uh, one of the I worst like fires. <laughs> one of the worst fires in terms of, uh, life lost in, uh, at least in the U S um, Beshtigo? Peshtigo. Uh, the Peshtigo fire, which killed between 1,500 and 2,500, and Whoa. we don't know because the whole town was burned. Holy um, shit. This was Wisconsin in 1871. Wait, it burned... Wisconsin? Yeah. Okay. Why is that surprising? Because that's not really the western oh, part uh, of the country where you'd expect all no, the fires not, to be. <laughs> not necessarily, but... Um, I think it being up a little bit more north, they have they have cert- certain amount of trees because Canada, Canada yeah, also has tons of fires. Yeah, it's definitely Versus dense. like yeah, the true. middle of Kansas or something, which you know doesn't. Huh. Um, okay. It, so it burned 1.2 million acres, which was 18,075. I'm sorry, 1,875 square miles. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty. It's pretty big. Mm-hmm. It's decent. Um. And it was caused, maybe this is, it was human caused. It was caused by a smaller fire designed to clear out land for farming that got way out of hand because they chose the worst possible day to do this when a very aggressive cold front was moving in Uh and just totally took the flames and just made it, took it out of control. Oh my God. Could you imagine being responsible for something like that? Nope. Or at least in part. (laughs) That's nutty. The winds were so strong, it jumped over the Pastigo River. So embers or whatnot were able to cross from one side of the river to the other. Um, Goddamn. The largest fires, so like I started off with, there are 35 currently burning in the U.S. Um, Russia, Canada, and the U.S. are the top top contenders and the the top three that have the the problem. for the most part, or at least, you know, the most significant Italy's in there, definitely. Um, and there's a couple other spots along that same belt. Um, 
the largest fire ever in terms of acreage burned mm-hmm. was the 2003 Siberian Taiga fire in Russia. Hey, wait, that's slang for tiger? No, uh, no, that's the area. T-A-I-G-A, the taiga. <laughs> I believe that's how you, I think that's how you say that. Siberian taiga. <laughs> oh, I see that's what you're saying. Oh, okay, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't understand what you were saying at first. I was like, I thought it was a slang term or something. That's hilarious. Or just Sorry. like affect the word tiger, but just with an effect, tiger. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's just how you say it. So the Pashtigo fire was 1.2 million acres. Mm-hmm. This fire was 47 million. What? So basically, 47 Where is this times. Again? As, uh, this is in Siberia, Siberia. Russia. Siberia, okay, yeah, yeah. And so I'll just I'll just read the quick uh, the Spy- Siberian forest fire of 20, 2003. Jumping over my words today. Hmm. Uh, Forty seven million acres of land. Jesus. Emissions from these fires equaled the emission cuts promised by the European Union under the Kyoto Protocol. <laughs> Increasing temperatures and thawing of permafrost in Siberia are most likely the cause of the growing number of intensities of forest fires in Siberia. Satellite images of the fire show that Eurasia cov- show Eurasia, so that that area of Russia, Asia, mm-hmm. just completely blanketed in smoke. Damn, that's wild. Um, and interestingly, as far as biggest fires go, uh, U.S. was only made. Uh, we made it into the top ten. Russia and Canada hold out the top nine. Okay. So we certainly have our a, a decent number of forest fires, but Russia and Canada actually have more of a problem. Granted, uh, both Russia and Canada, these are happening, generally speaking, in very remote locations. Right, right. Hmm. Versus people driving on the highway to work with the hill on fire. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different different animal yeah. when that happens. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that's... Uh, well, I think it goes without saying that the people who actually devote themselves to fighting this stuff, I mean, that's... It's insane. That's next level. It is, really. And absolutely crucial and yeah. probably underappreciated. Oh, yeah. And, that's all I can think and about. And so many things because, I mean, we, it's come a long way, uh, as with a lot of things, the older methods and whatnot. I mean, we talked a little bit about entrapment and just mm-hmm. how scary that must be and... You know, so things like that have, have certainly reduced, but yeah, you know, the smoke jumpers when they jump in, the, you know, they're on their own for sometimes a couple weeks. Wow. So they're they're Anything they're trained, happen. you know, they're trained professionals in survival and firefighting and mm-hmm. first aid and you name it. Damn, what a life. Pretty badass. That so. is really bad. Pretty badass. Thanks for and then the, the two guys at the alive. Forest Service went and like tried to sell some planes and yeah, put, right? a bad name, put a bad name on a bunch of stuff. i got to say, that's not where I thought this was going when you brought that up. <laughs> like I said, that was originally just a quick little... But little i got to find tidbit. that very center. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks for listening this week, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Hope, Appreciate it. Hope you stay sane and join us again next week. Yeah, let us know what you want us to talk about. Yeah, if you got any topic suggestions, we'll uh, we'll definitely take them. Definitely, we'll do our best to not butcher them. Yep. <laughs> no All right, y'all. Yeah, no positive for sure.